Hi, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. Join us today for a conversation with Dr. Dina Siddiqui about supply chain politics and the problem with saving the universal garment worker. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Lauren Hill. I'm Catherine Tedrow. And I'm Danielle Arzaga. We're the founders of Population, a change agency blending the creative and strategic to embed an integrated approach to sustainability into brand, marketing, and business model strategy. We convene the much-needed conversations about systems change by centering stakeholders across the entire value chain, all the way from supply to demand, to co-create solutions to the biggest sustainability challenges facing our industry. Today, we're speaking with Bangladeshi scholar and NYU professor, Dr. Dina Siddiqui, about supply chain politics in the fashion industry. She examines topics at the intersection of gender and human rights, including transnational feminist politics, women's work in the ready-made garment industry, and the idea of saving the universal garment worker, a common trope of the anti-fast fashion movement. Hi, Dr. Siddiqui. Welcome to Unspun, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and hello. It's great to have you here. You occupy a really unique space in the industry. How was it that you came to be in this space, and what does it look like from where you sit? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me and for engaging with my work in such generative ways. I have to say it's really gratifying to know that this is of some use outside of academia in particular. So I'm very excited to be here. And I really love this question because it's helped me. I think it gets to my intellectual location, but it's also helped me. It gives me a chance to reflect on where I am now. So I grew up in Bangladesh and I study Bangladesh. And one of the things about studying a place like Bangladesh, and I don't want to make the country exceptional, but a so-called third world, so-called backward place is that when you're involved in research, there's a sense of urgency that you have to produce knowledge that's useful, right? It has to be able to improve people's lives. Knowledge and research is not a luxury item. So there's always that pressure. And it doesn't matter if you're what your politics are, if you're left-wing or right-wing, the main objective of of whatever university professors and researchers do is to fix the system, right? There's no time or patience to stand back and reflect, to take account of complexities, inconsistencies, and contradictions. Those pesky little things that get in the way of policy recommendations or solution-oriented work, right? And this is, of course, again, and I'm telling you about my experience of how I came into doing the kind of work, came into my desire to really reframe narratives of development and narratives of garment workers is in places like Bangladesh, there's an extraordinary hold of the development industry, I suppose, on knowledge production. And again, Bangladesh isn't exceptional, but the kinds of questions that are asked, the kinds of models of development that are valorized, and even the kinds of research projects that are funded are all, you know, 
folded into the larger development world of, you know, um, not just the World Bank, but DFID, which is the British uh, USAID, DFID, places like that. They're all setting the terms of debate because that's where the money is, right? Mm -hmm. So whether you're a small NGO or whether you're the world's largest NGO, which Bangladesh has, you're always in conversation with those people. So the questions you ask are always very similar kinds of questions. And I saw that when people were writing about the garment industry and it drove me a little bit crazy, partly because I have, you know, I have a real anthropological sensibility and my, that really grated against the kind of black and white reductive knowledge that was produced about the garment industry. I wanted to pay attention to the inconsistencies and the difficulties and the interstices. I wanted to argue, show people that the framing of the problem itself was problematic, hmm. right? I was really invested in this. What's happened, and I found, I think, in general, that I'm very much more comfortable inhabiting these in-between liminal spaces rather than being in one world or another. I'm most comfortable, most at home in non-orthodox spaces, if you will. So I don't, I discovered that very early on, I didn't want to be a full-time academic with the publish and peril hyper-capitalist disciplinary regime around me. But I also discovered that, you know, I didn't perfectly belong in the world of NGO activism. I was asking all these questions to which they weren't quick solutions, not just easy solutions, but not time-bound, you know, in the NGO world, they have, you have to have time-bound indicator-based solutions. So I'm very happy being on the outside. And that has really shaped my intellectual trajectory. But being on the outside also has its costs. I think I've had until very recently, it's been a little bit lonely because the environment in which, you know, my audience was primarily for Bangladesh. Hmm. I'm glad that, you know, the, uh, you know, the article has circulated, but in that environment, the knowledge that really mattered was the knowledge that can produce a policy brief. So I've been really systematically marginalized in a certain kind of way. And that feminist review article was ignored for years. It's only last year that somebody told me they actually teach it. Hmm. Which is really interesting because it's a different set of Bangladeshis are dealing with a different set of issues of the problems that need to be solved, you know, the, and it's not within this international, it's very nationalized. And one of the things my uh, work has tried to do is connect, is to show how the national and the international really cannot be separated. But I did, I perhaps things are moving. I mean, I am actually now known as somebody who does, you know, research on the garment industry. But a few weeks ago, I had an economist, a Bangladeshi economist, who's writing a book on the garment industry, wanted to interview me. And um, he said he'd read all my work, which is the first time I've heard of it. So I must be doing something right. <laughs> anyway, there we are. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. You mentioned this a little bit in kind of your journey in the the particular space that you occupy in the industry, but we'd love to hear a little bit more on your thoughts of the role of multi-stakeholder initiatives and NGOs, whether positive mm -hmm. or negative, in addressing supply chain dysfunctions for the industry. Right. I love that you, you know, you word the word, you use the word dysfunction. 
to talk about supply chains. And I think that already shows the kind of a healthy skepticism toward dominant narratives about the good that the supply chain does, right? In terms of that question, I think I I don't know how much your listeners will know, but I want to begin with what Bangladesh is known for, which is after the 2013 collapse of Rana Plaza, Mm -hmm. which some of you will know. I mean, I've written somewhere that Rana Plaza has become this, you know, a signifier for everything that could go wrong with development, with with sweatshops, quote unquote, right? But it was a key moment of rupture that really intensified the global gaze on Bangladesh. And it's hailed also as a moment that brought about a change in the game, a change in the way the supply chain was organized, but in which garment production, global garment production was organized. So, and I'm talking about the multi-stakeholder legally binding model of CSR, which is the accord, mm-hmm. a global accord on building and fire safety in Bangladesh, right? And it's because it included workers' voices, because it was so-called legally binding, it's really been built as a model for other places, right? And the other thing it did was it held brands accountable in ways, in very particular ways. So brands were liable to, brands were allowed, brands which signed on to the accord were allowed to contract only from suppliers whose factories met certain safety conditions, right? This is all very good. But what the accord, because I do think obviously the, you know, building conditions fire safety conditions are absolutely essential to the lives of garment workers, you know, to having safe, producing a safe working condition. But what the accord did was it basically left supply chain dynamics untouched. Hmm. It was a very corporate Hmm. friendly policy. It's Hmm. so interesting because the basic power asymmetries are untouched. And the basic problems that Bangladeshi garment workers had, problems that weren't only about building safety and fire safety, were problems that have continued and continued and that I'll go back to. But I I want to finish saying something about what happens when you have this corporate-friendly CSR, this so-called game change change make game changer because what it does it it sort of arrives on Bangladesh's shore in this imperial mode right mm-hmm. we have arrived we've got the solution for you it didn't involve the Bangladeshi government whether the government is good or bad labor friendly or not it's still the government so national sovereignty was completely left out it didn't involve the BGME the Bangladesh Garment Manufacturers and Employers Association which is most certainly not friendly to workers it's there for profits we know that but so is every so are the brands but so it's sort of it looks like it kind of swooped in with its own choice of who it wanted to work with locally. But what it did, all this attention on the local, the shoddy building material, the corrupt government officials, the lack of oversight, all true, all very true. But it effectively, because it obscured the larger global structure and structures of inequality, it culturalized, it pathologized, it framed through this narrative of third world backness, you know, 
it produced Bangladesh as being ethically efficient. So the problem became mm-hmm. all of the problem of Bangladesh and Bangladeshi factory owners and the Bangladeshi government. So those were the people held accountable. And so the brands end up being the good guys. So what I'm trying to do constantly is put these two things together. If I sometimes initially, when I said this in Bangladesh, people would get very upset saying, am I being complicit with or, uh, with the factory owners? Well, no, of course, they're pretty awful too. I understand that. But if you look at the hierarchies within the supply global supply chain, they are lower down. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're exploiting workers, but their power, their space for negotiation mm-hmm. is different from the yeah. brands, different from the buying houses. Okay. So uh, for me, it seems that it's really problematic to just focus on something like the Accord. Not that the Accord might not have been, it was useful, but there there are many critiques of the Accord. I want to do a much more discursive critique. There are lots of other critiques you can get about literally how it was implemented and not, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to get into that. I'm really interested in the larger discursive structure in which the Accord became the one thing that would save Bangladeshi garment Mm -hmm. workers. Right. Yeah. The accord and kind of as an extension of codes of conduct and MSIs in general, you know, a critique recently is that they're specifically not centering rights holders themselves, the workers. And we're curious, do you think the industry today has the capacity to decenter the other actors with more power who aren't the rights holders and follow the lead of workers across the world in their political and cultural context? Okay, this is a very interesting question, but I think it's very layered and multi-stranded. And let me start with the first, and I think perhaps the simplest strand, which is that I don't see the question being one of global versus local or international rights versus culturally contextualized kinds of workers' rights. If you just think about something like sexual harassment, for instance, right? I mean, obviously, I think we can agree that nobody wants sexual harassment. And perhaps there are, you know, sexually, you know, uh, contextually specific forms of sexual harassment. But I think we can have laws against sexual harassment in general. Mm. So that's one part of the global versus the local that I think we can dispense with. The second thing is, and it's a really important point, I would say, is that we need to look at what counts as international, what counts as an international workers' right, what counts as an international standard, and what counts as what workers really need. So at the same time that workers are being given training by brands on their rights to report sexual harassment, okay? Their rights, what the law says and how there should be, in every factory, there should be a committee to which they can go and complain confidentially. Those trainings are going on, while at another level in the factory, workers know that if they speak up, about harassment, they will be fired for speaking up. It's not the harassment because there will be other workers that can take their place. So again, it's not, it's, so there's a much larger context in which these issues need to be talked about. So it's not just patriarchal Muslim men and changing their mindsets. 
it's not just training. I have, there's nothing wrong with training, but training is really the minimal that one can do. And it's the, the hardest thing to do is to change the structures. So that's one part of your question that I think I've answered. One of the things the pandemic has done is really laid bare the extreme power asymmetries within the global supply chain, as I'm sure you know, and how that affects laboring bodies. So local factories, and this is without the pandemic, and this is where my earlier work, I think, continues to be relevant, which is really sad. Some things have really changed, both Rana Plaza. Some things are completely the same. In 2003, I did a study for UNFPA, actually, on sexual harassment in the garment industry. And what I found then, people are still finding now because some structural factors haven't changed. What happens? Because brands have tremendous power that they wield over local manufacturers, local manufacturers, they had, they pushed down prices arbitrarily. This is what happened after 2013. And there are lots of studies that show that the prices Bangladeshi factories are being paid now, today, pre-pandemic, were much 17% lower than the prices they were being paid before Rana Plaza. So basically, the brands are making more profits because Bangladesh has become Bangladesh's reputation has been tainted by Rana Plaza, right? What do local factory owners do? To maintain their profits, they pass on the burden to workers by increasing individual quotas and hiring fewer workers, right? Yeah. So that increases sexual harassment. And I think I had a reference to that 2003 article, yeah, um, 2003 study in my Feminist Review article, right? Mm -hmm. But I did a review again for somebody else, for the IDRC on violence in the workplace. And these kinds of things haven't changed. You know, you, the reasons for sexual harassment have not changed because the supply chain. So long before any COVID crisis, there were these problems with the supply chain. Very, it's a very dysfunctional supply chain, right? Yeah. So I think that's really what needs to be addressed. And again, corporate codes are fine, but I think what to me is really urgent and pressing is to look, we've spent a lot of time down the supply chain. We've looked at Bangladesh, we've looked at the workers, we've yeah. looked at the factory owners, we've looked at the government, we've studied it all to death. Literally, What's the other part of the equation. The pun is not intended, right? You know, horrible. But there you go. We've done a lot of work on it. We need. It's time to go up the supply chain, study up the supply chain. And one of the things I really feel very strongly we need to do is study, look at legal arrangements. Why is it that during the pandemic? All of these brands were able to legally withdraw from their contracts mm -hmm. with Bangladeshi mm -hmm. factories. That's what really caused a huge problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bangladeshi workers were literally out on the streets thinking, you know, because they had no savings. But anyway, they were thrown out of work, yeah. right? Because of these cancellations, what seemed to me arbitrary cancellations. It's only last year, after March last year, that I found out about clauses like the force measure clause 
that allows companies to use their lawyers to renege on mm-hmm. their contracts, but legally, so they can't be held accountable. Yeah, right? just so I think there's something that. more. It's a it's a very global systemic problem. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the you know, just like the Rana Plaza collapse, the post-COVID fallout and the brand reactions and then the anti-fast fashion movement's reactions to that kind of spurred another wave of the dynamic of empowering garment workers and what you call kind of the culture of global moralism and the idea Mm. of saving the universal garment worker. Mm. And we're wondering if you could kind of talk about what your reaction to that you know, third, second, fifth wave of that was. Right. Well, first of all, it's all very well-intentioned. So I don't want to make individuals ever feel bad about what they're trying to do. And neither do we on our show. I know, no, of course, but of course, yes. Uh, But as a, so I feel a little bit, um, no, do I feel bad? No, not at all. Actually, I don't feel bad. Okay. All right. I just wanted to, not feel people who really feel the urge to do something, to disempower them. But these initiatives are very individualist, very nation-based. And it's clear more and more, I think what the pandemic has done, at least for people who study the industry, is unveiled some of the myths of empowerment that you can't just talk about individual empowerment, you need to look at the supply chain. At least I see that among policymakers. I see myself being invited places I wouldn't have. And I think that's a change. But I want to say something about the empowerment thing that I, you know, things have changed a little bit, that pay up movement or whatever, there were various, there were initiatives, right? But that's not where I think most of the focus was. Certainly in Bangladesh, the head of the Bangladesh Garment Employers as an Association, appealed to brands and buyers in these very interesting videos that you should take a look at if you're interested. I mean, I found them problematic, but it was clear that she was going to the source rather than doing something about, you know, we must just raise the prices. But there are two things about the empowerment thing. One is that the recent rise of this individualist notion of empowerment, the global moralism has now been inflected with a different kind of neoliberal humanitarianism. And, you know, this World Bank investing in gender, gender equality, smart economics, they call it. This is from 10, 15 years ago. But one of the ways in which it's been spun out is that there's been a shift from looking at women and empowering women who are victimized to empowering girls to help themselves and help others. So Nike's girl effect is part of that, right? And Nike's girl effect is very much part of talking about the, you know, the sweatshop worker who can do more than just save herself. If you look at all of the advertisements around it. It's about, and there've been lots of wonderful studies done on this. It's about how the girl can save herself, but save others, save the nation and the global economy. So the discourse of empowerment has really changed since the time I wrote these earlier articles Mm -hmm. to become, has been neoliberalized in particular kinds of ways. Now, I actually think that 
this myth of neoliberal empowerment of Muslim women in particular, in my case, lifting their families out of poverty through factory work has been ruptured a little bit by the pandemic. It's not that easy to now say that. And I think this is our space for trying to do something. So I'm really glad this was one of the reasons I was so excited about being invited to this conversation by people like you who are invested in making a difference, not in academia, but outside of academia. But I think this myth of ethical business of brands, you know, doing what they do, to help women as they help our girls as they help themselves, it's been a little bit undermined by their basically dumping these workers mm-hmm. because they have issues, right? And it's true that, of course, the stores closed down. You know, there was no market. I understand. But of course, they had the kind of savings or they, you know, maybe they didn't have to pay their shareholders that year. Maybe their profits could have gone down a little bit, Right. I mean, that's for the pandemic, but maybe when, you know, when people in this country, this goes back to the international standards, when people in this country, well-meaning people in this country say, we want Bangladeshi factory owners to pay their Bangladeshi workers more, they need to then talk to, you know, do something about or address the fact that brands have the power to just keep on paying less and less to Bangladeshi factory owners who are just going to take it out, the factory owners. Bangladeshi factory owners are capitalists too. They don't care about the workers. All they're going to do is just, you know, they don't want, they know their their profits have been cut, but they'll try to keep as much as they can and they'll do it. You know what happens every time the price rises, every time the factory owners are forced to increase prices, they cut down on the number of workers. They increase the quotas, as I've been saying, right? Everybody knows what happens. So if you don't raise the prices and if you don't make sure the factory owners, then obviously not all owners do it. The very well-off people who have lots of cushion don't do it. You know, I know people that are like that, but it's a handful of people mm-hmm. with the large industries. But the smaller people, the subcontracting firms don't have a choice, yeah. right? So it's simply not about international and local, cultural. You know, of course, there are cultural issues, but I don't think being culturally sensitive is really the issue here. Hmm. Right. So I think the you know, we are in a position and I'm trying to do this through my work very slowly as academic work is (laughs) these liberal imperial myths around and that are very racialized, too, because it's like women's bodies elsewhere. Those myths can be unspun. To use your word, I finally get, I finally, <laughs> finally agree me why this is called on spot. It's fantastic, right? And perhaps I can even use it. It's beautiful. But those are the ways in which I think we can shift the narrative. I think we are all in this together. And I don't want to discourage people from realizing that they are benefiting from cheap clothes, although it's not just cheap clothes, you know. Mm-hmm. Even the sh- not fast fashion is part of this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we are all complicit. I'm sitting here in North America. What do we do about it? So that's my spiel. Thank you. Thank you for that. Dr. Siddiqui, you spoke a little bit about the need to have legal frameworks that hold people accountable and also rebalance these power dynamics in the supply chain. 
But how do you think we can educate actors Mm. in the entire industry that believe it's their responsibility to educate factory owners and empower garment workers on their rights? Wow, that's a hard question. (laughs) Partly because, of course, you know, as I was saying, you know, even studying up is difficult, even researching that. But we need to not just feel entitled to educate people in Bangladesh. I don't think people in Bangladesh need educating on these things. Let me tell you, the garment workers I know, you know, they don't need educating on their rights. Even when during the pandemic, some factories did stay open and people were upset at garment workers being out on the streets or being called back to work in the factories. And they were treated very badly by the owners. They were just randomly called back from their village homes and they, you know, walked back if they had to, because they were so afraid of losing their jobs and they really didn't have any saving. But there was all this talk about, oh, these people are so irresponsible. We need to train them about COVID. Don't they know about COVID? But hello, it's like, you know, so-called essential workers anywhere. Mm -hmm. They were saying, well, are we going to starve to death or are we going to die from COVID? Are you giving us much? You're not giving us a choice. Mm-hmm. So education and training, yes, of course, at certain level, you need education and training. We all do. We're all constantly educating ourselves. But I don't think we should assume this sort of North-style hierarchical structure. It's uh, I mean, the idea, yeah. and it's common in everything we've talked about, about saving the universal garment worker, right. this idea that people really believe that they need to be the one to educate a factory right. owner or a garment worker. And our question is kind of getting at that up the chain level. Right. How do we educate the people that think that? Wow, right. Oh, that is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. I know that's what you want to do. Um, <laughs> but they're all capitalists. I mean, after all, they are trying to make profits. That's what mm. capitalism is about. Mm-hmm. Right. Whether you're talking yeah. about Bangladeshi, gar- you know, Bangladeshi yeah. garment workers have used for a long time this myth of empowerment to cover over their own lapses too, saying we are a poor country. Right. Look, we're doing this. We are lifting up our women. We are making our nation proud. So what if if there are you know a few people die in collapses and whatever? I, it wasn't quite quite like that, but it is a cover, right? The empowerment discourse is a cover. Why not uh, just say, I think going up the chain, one of the things is perhaps to disabuse people. I think a lot of people in powerful positions really do subscribe to this savior narrative, to this empowerment narrative, and they do need to be, those narratives need to be unspun in their heads, in their decision-making to a certain extent, at least be honest about what you're doing. You know, this because this is part of the whole advertising, this is part of the whole corporate structure. So you're a little bit stuck there, but perhaps not because there will be people. I do know I have, I do know people in Bangladesh who want to make profits, but who also want to provide the childcare, who want to have their, you know, do certain things within, you know, it's this crazy unregulated capitalism. If you're going to stay within capitalism, I frankly think the problem is capitalism. But if we, if this is what we have to work with, then you can't have all of these excuses for unregulated capitalism of the neoliberal kind that we live with, that you need to push back against that at least. 
And don't mm-hmm. use safe saving Bangladeshi women as an excuse for your maintaining your profit for your shareholders. Mm-hmm. That's where I think, you know, you guys can make a difference. I think you can. And I think there are good people up there in corporations who, you know, of course, I mean, I really think structural changes need to happen. But in the scheme in which you are thinking and working, that's one of the, you know, ways. Undoing narratives, reframing narratives, or at least just giving people the information. Look, you know, those people at Rana Plaza, and perhaps you've heard it before, those 1,100 or 1,200 workers stayed in the factory. They were, you know, they knew the factory was about, you know, it's a very dangerous space. They stayed because of all the conditions we all know about. They stayed because it was near the end of the month. They hadn't been paid for the month. The manager said, if you don't come in today, you will forfeit your whole month's wages. To other workers, they said, if you don't come in, you will be fired, right? They were, in a sense, they had no, you know, choice. It was like, oh, am I going to miss my whole month's wages? Hmm. Or will I have to then, you know, find a job in another factory? So many things go through. So it's not so that building collapse, you know, making the building safe is a really good thing but it's nowhere near adequate to changing the everyday conditions under which labor negotiates with capital. And mm. capital is both in Europe and the and North America, as well as in Bangladesh. And Bangladeshi capital has a very different relationship to the labor, uh, labor than others. You bring up a really powerful point that we avoid responsibility or we we avoid critically looking at the structure of the system, which is capitalism, by making all these other, not that they're not legitimate reasons why there are dysfunctions in the supply chain, but they don't get at the real reason why there are dysfunctions in the supply chain. And as long as we avoid looking at the structure of the system and how across the world in various contexts, it creates conditions where people are not working in healthy working conditions, whether that's in the United States or Bangladesh, because that also is something that happens here. It's not, you know, Mm -hmm. the United States is not this like perfect place where all workers are treated well Mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. So I think what you bring up is really important. That's like, are we asking the right questions? Are we thinking about the structure of the system? Are we using often, as you mentioned, racialized excuses for why the system is dysfunctional? Mm -hmm. One thing that we would love to know when we ask all of our guests is what is the number one question that you're asking the industry right now in order to achieve real change? Or what, what's the question that we should be trying to answer as an industry in order to achieve real change? I think I, I feel like I've said this many times over. What are you doing to address the inequalities in the supply chain? What specifically are you doing as a brand, as a company, as a retailer? How can you ensure that the next time there is a pandemic that you won't need and the shops close down or something happen that, you know, the same chain reaction, the same cascading effect won't go, you know, won't unfold, right? I think that's what I would ask. It depends. I think this is such a multi-layered system. That's what I would ask of the brands. I would ask of the factories, a, a, a different of Bangladeshi factories, a different question. Bangladeshi factories always say, you know, we're so powerless. 
but they're not entirely powerless. You know, maybe they also need to ask a different set of questions. What are you doing so that next time it doesn't happen? What structurally are you going to do? You can't just call workers in one minute and not call, you know, just say, no, sorry, we're not producing anymore because the COVID rates have gone up. Why didn't you Mm -hmm. decide, you know? But it is all related to the supply chain, Mm -hmm. right? What are you doing to insulate yourself? Do not take on more orders than you can if it means subcontracting out. We imagine that you have met so many people in the supply chain that, you know, we've, we've been to so many panels and conferences and the industry loves events. And we really love to highlight someone in the background that maybe doesn't have the platform that even you have as a professor in academia. So we, we've kind of coined it our unspun heroes or sheroes. And if you have someone in mind that you want to give a shout out to, we'd love to hear that. Absolutely. And I think that's a lovely idea. I have an unsung shero. Her name is Taslima Akhtar. And she, I don't know if you know, after, if you remember after Rana Plaza, there's a photograph that became quite iconic of the collapse of a couple in embrace. Okay. She was the photographer. She's a photographer, but after that, she also became, she's a youngish Bangladeshi university educated left-wing activist who's been working with organizing Bangladeshi workers, garment workers. She has a a very loose, unregistered organization called the Bangladesh um, Stromik Shanguti Garment Workers Unity. I think it's called Garment Workers, yeah, Solidarity Forum, not Unity, Solidarity. But she is, I personally find her to be somebody I really look up to which is she's avoided the NGO. And again, I don't want to put down people who go the NGO way, right? That's one way to do things, but she's not taking money from people. She runs basically on funds, you know, occasionally one cents funds. But what she does with garment workers is she trains them on the law, but it's interesting. She also, you know, opens up like she has camps with them where they talk about what they need. So two or three day camps. She opens up libraries for, you know, she helps with their with their children. She's really interested in asking the right questions by talking to the workers. Mm-hmm. So she really foregrounds the workers. She's not the voice of the workers. But she actually also recently wrote an article in The Nation, co-authored an article in The Nation after Mm. Rana Plaza. Okay. She's just managed to keep her eyes on the questions that matter. And the last time I saw her, which was a while ago, thanks to the pandemic, she was rushing off. I've written this in my latest article. She was rushing off to meet with lawyers because she wanted to give garment workers that she knew training, not on the laws of workers' rights, but because so many garment workers are often the ones who speak out, whether it's on sexual harassment or unfair dismissal or not being paid on time, you know, often get either are dismissed or have false cases lodged against them. Mm. Those are the invisible structural violence you don't see, right? That's the reason you can keep wages down. That's one of the many reasons. So she wanted to give 
the workers she knew training. She wanted a lawyer to give, you know, to give the workers insights on how to negotiate those things. So mm. what the workers need is something only the workers can tell you and only a certain kind of familiarity with the industry can tell you. And I just think she is a wonderful person. She is so good. She's on the ground. She has a wonderful office. She's totally a hero worth having or Shiro. Thank you for that. Thanks for sharing her with us. Well, we're so grateful that you were willing to come on and have a conversation with us. And we're so grateful to our intern, Kelsey, who's become much more than an intern to us, who actually brought you to to us and did her project on your work last spring so thank you so much it's been wonderful it's been an honor i enjoyed myself thank you thank you thank you thanks for listening to another episode of unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home huge thanks to this week's guest dr dina siddiqui for sharing her perspective on the industry To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at wearepopulation or visit our website, wearepopulation.com. Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed with Corey Cambridge, and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.